I want to start by asking you a question. Uh, why are you here? Why are you here? <laughs> There's a lot of different ways that you can answer this question. Um, could be, why did you roll out of bed this morning, right? Why are you in this room today? Maybe you are here because it's a routine. Maybe it's here because you really enjoy the community. Maybe you're in this room because you're being forced to. Maybe your wife brought you. Maybe your mom brought you. And that's one way we can take this question. Another way we can take this question is, why are you here? And if you're a normal person, when I ask that question, a shield kind of comes up pretty quick. Um, because even, you know, in church, we're kind of protected. We kind of reject this idea of postmodernism. But it still infects us in some ways that are kind of difficult to perceive. And so when I ask you this question, the normal response is to say, brother, I'm just trying to pay the bills. I can't talk about these questions. I don't want to hear a whole sermon on dusty names and events that cause people to change their opinion. And because the reality is, and you don't believe this, but it is in your heart the thought is, we can't know why we are here. In fact, asking the question invites ridicule in our world today. If I ask you, why are you here? The response is, what a stupid question. You can't know why you're here. But we believe in Creator God. And He has given us a story and we have a part in that story. And that's what we're going to talk about today. So when we're going to talk about a story, where's the best place to start a story? <laughs> at the beginning. So let's start at the beginning. Genesis 1, 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void and darkness was over the surface of the deep. In the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth. That's a title, probably. And then the author starts to set the scene for us. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. Is this a happy picture? It's not, is it? We're given a couple words here. Formless. It's amorphous. You can't see it. There's something there, but we don't know what it is. Void is another word that's very difficult to define this word, but I'm a computer scientist, and the best definition that I can give you is that the word void means that something should be there, but it's not. Next, we have the word darkness. Now, imagine for a moment you're the original audience of this. You're a person in the ancient Near East. What is darkness to you? In fact, darkness, what does it mean in the whole Bible? The word darkness is often, always, used as evil. And that makes sense because it, ancient people, they didn't have these fluorescent lights. They didn't have flashlights, right? You were rich if you had a candle. So darkness meant the unknown, scary. In fact, to go out into the darkness means that you are vulnerable. 
you are unable to act. And darkness was over what? The surface of the deep. Now, I think a lot of us, when we think of what this is, the surface of the deep, we kind of imagine this pristine mountain lake, if you're anything like me, right? Beautiful mirror surface, right? And it kind of just goes on and stretches into nothing or the best that we can comprehend, nothing. But that is not what we should think of when we hear the word the deep, or maybe your translation says the sea. It doesn't matter. The deep is a tumultuous, it is a maelstrom. This is a crashing, thunderous chaos. The surface of the deep means this is the home of Leviathan, the literal embodiment of chaos and death. To the ancient Near East, if you're going to sail out into the deep, you are not coming back. That is the setting that the author is giving to us here at the beginning. And then God steps in. Let's read a little further. Then God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. And then we're kind of given this whole new drama where God creates and it was good, and God creates, and it was good, and God creates, and it was good, and we're given this whole kind of drama, and this word good, I want to point out here, because we're in a world where defining words means nothing, morally excellent, valuable, ordered, beautiful. So imagine again, do your best, try to erase the last 6,000 years of human history. You know nothing about what God is. You've just been handed this scroll by Moses. What do you know about God at this point? You know, one, that God is spirit because the spirit of God moved over the waters. Number two, that he is good. He creates order from chaos. And number three, he's a creator. So now let's skip forward a little bit in our verses, and we get to 26. And here the author breaks this pattern that he set forward for us. Then God said, let us make man in our image. According to our likeness, let him rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth. And over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. This is repeated three times here. God created man in his image. Do you think that's important? Pastor Nick actually did a whole sermon on this already in late July, I think it was. But I'm going to do it again um, because I think it's very important. God broke the pattern here. He creates man in his image. So I think it's very important now to ask, what is an image? And if you've been in Sunday school for any amount of time, you know you've seen this example where the image is a mirror. Right? I can hold up a mirror. It reflects. It's a very beautiful Sunday school image where I can say, you're supposed to reflect God. And I think that's correct. That's a good example of what an image is, but I don't think it tells the full picture. An image is more than that. 
So what is an image? Instagram generation. What is an image? We have these cameras in our pockets, right? We can take a picture with that. It used to be called a photograph, right? But that's very old language. Today we call this an image. Okay, so what is that? Well, is this an image? Sure it is. Imagine I'm on the beach right now, and I snap this photo, and I send it to you, right? What do you get from that image? Do you, are you on the beach now? Can you feel the sun on this cold day? Can you feel the sand on your feet? Can you smell the ocean and hear the waves? Almost. See, it's funny with certain images. In fact, I would say the more time you spend with the real thing, the more powerful an image is. Isn't it? The more time you spend with the real thing, the more powerful an image becomes. Here's another image. So this is a picture my nephew made. I want to point this out to you, other than just showing, showing off my nephew's artwork. Um, this is an image, okay? This is his image. So if I took this image now and I gave it to you, what would that mean? Would that become your image? No, it wouldn't. It would always be my nephew's image. Why? Because he created it. There is nothing on this earth that can change the fact that that image belongs to my nephew. There's nothing that any of us can do in this room to change that fact because he created it. So an image is something that's created and it is made to represent something. So he, God created mankind in his image to represent himself. So what does it mean to be a human representative? Well, actually, thankfully, we have a good example of what a human representative is because we live in a world with kingdoms and we have diplomats. Here's an example of a diplomat. Some of you know who this is. Colin Powell served as Secretary of State, America's top diplomat. Imagine you were in his shoes, or any shoes. Say you are the United States representative to China. You are the United States representative to Germany, Japan, wherever. What is your job? Well, part of your job is, of course, to make sure that the relationship between the kingdom that you currently reside in and the kingdom that is your home stays good. That relationship is good. That's true. But really, at the end of the day, what your responsibility is, is to make sure that that country that you currently reside in is going to serve the interests of your home country. That is your job. So I don't want you to feel like I'm just pulling this exegesis out of nowhere, so let's read a little bit farther ahead here. So Genesis 1.28, God, 
God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. What does that sound like? It sounds like a conqueror, doesn't it? It sounds kind of like a ruler. Rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This is God's command to man. What does that mean? Be fruitful and multiply. Let's take that one. Does that mean have a lot of babies, have a lot of children? A lot of shaking heads? Partially, it does mean that. But what are you doing when you do that? You are creating, creating, right? An aspect of our creator, an aspect of God, a creator. You are creating an image of God. You are growing the image of God. You are filling the earth with the image of God, the representation of God. This is actually really fascinating. When a, in the ancient Near East, when a king would go and conquer a territory, he would go and he would leave what? Cheating. An image of himself. He would build a statue so that and anybody walked out of their rooms and they saw in the town square, there's the statue of the king who came and conquered us, and they would be reminded who is in control. This is a statue of King Darius. He went and conquered the Egyptians. This is the command that God gave to humanity when he created them. Fill the earth. Be my representative. So how did that go? How did that work out? Well, let's skip a little bit farther ahead in God's story. So Genesis 6, 5 through 8. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. And the Lord said, I will blot out man who I have created from the face of the land and man to animals and creeping kings and the birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And so now we have drama of the 40 days and 40 nights and God floods the earth and wipes out everybody and starts over. Moses, sorry, I do that all the time. Noah <laughs> is walking out of the ark right into the sun and the dry land and God himself comes to him and makes him a promise and says what? It won't flood the land anymore, and, oops, okay, we're back. Genesis 9, 1, Noah has just walked off the ark, and God says to him, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. Okay, round one failed. My representatives didn't work out too great, but you, Noah, you're a good guy, so go and be my representative on this earth. Well, how did that work out? Well, the Tower of Babel happened pretty quick. And what was the whole point of the Tower of Babel? They wanted to be with themselves. They wanted to become God. It's the exact same story repeated again. So, it failed. So now skip forward. Now we're with Moses. We've just left Egypt. Right? We're going out into the land trying to search for the promised land that God has given to us. And we don't really know who God is at this point. Moses is handing us these scrolls. He's giving these things. And everybody's kind of asking, okay, what's going on here? What's the point? 
Why did we leave our onions and our leeks in our nice place over in Egypt? Exodus 19, 3 through 6. Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell to the sons of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore on you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Stop. Wait, what? When did God bring the Israelites out on eagles' wings? Because that's not how I remember it. I remember it was a whole thing. You ever think God wouldn't make a very good American businessman? You're sitting there in the conference room, and what's on the docket today? Okay, well, we need to get the Israelites out of Egypt. Okay. Lightning bolt on Pharaoh, right? Split the land, get them out of there. Right? Let's get this over with. Done. But that's not how God does things. Is it? Why? Well, he tells us. Let's move forward back a little bit. Exodus 6, 6 through 7. Say, therefore, to the sons of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from their bondage. I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. Then I will take for you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. So, why is God doing this? So the Israelites will know that they are gods. And, chapter 7, Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I make you as a god to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I commanded you, and your brother Aaron shall speak to Pharaoh, that he let the sons of Israel go out of this land. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretched out my hand on Egypt and bring out the sons of Israel from their midst. So why did God do this? So the Egyptians will know that God is Lord. Going back to Exodus 19. Now then, if you indeed will obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you shall speak to the sons of Israel. God says, I'm coming. You're going to be my people. What's God saying here? What does that mean? Well, let's take the word holy first. I think a lot of us think the word holy and we don't really understand what it means. But what the word holy really means is set apart. In this case, the word holy means set apart for a purpose. And what is that purpose? To be a kingdom of priests. So what is a priest? A lot of questions were rolling through here. So God has basically two jobs in his economy, right? He's got prophets and priests. And defining a prophet is kind of easy, right? A prophet is a person who brings God to Man, God speaks to him. He brings the word of God to men. A priest, then, is kind of the opposite of that. A priest brings men to God. That is the job of a priest, the role of a priest. Exodus 25, let them construct a sanctuary for me that I may dwell among them. 
Isaiah 56, 7. Even those I bring to you, my holy mountain, and make them joyful in my house of prayer, their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer. For who? For Israel? (laughs) All people. The job of the Israelites was to bring people to God. They were, to, they were given a whole bunch of rules. They were given this list of things they had to do. Why? Because they were God's representatives on earth. How did that work out? Well, the next 400 years, there's wars, and there's ups, and there's downs, and there's judges, and there's David, the king, right? And he unites the kingdom, and everything's going to be great. And then immediately after that, there's civil war, and then there's this series of this king served God, and that king failed God, and this king served God, and this king rebelled against God, and then there's wars, and then they're conquered. And the whole time, the priests are saying, do you think God speaks in vain, And at the end of the Old Testament, we come to this. Malachi 1.10. This is God speaking. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the gates, that you might not uselessly kindle fire on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from you. Shut her down. Tired of this. I've come to you over and over and over, and I've tried to get a relationship with you, try to be my representatives, but you guys are not interested. So what does God do? Well, for 400 years, there's silence. But then, in God's story, he sends us who? Jesus. He sends his son. Who is what? What is Jesus? What is his purpose? We call ourselves Christians. We should be able to answer this question pretty strongly, right? So, thankfully, the Bible kind of makes this clear to us. So, the disciples are all gathered around, and they're asking Jesus, Hey, you know, you're great and all, but when do we get to see God? Right? Philip especially was kind of like, hey, you know, when, when's God coming? And Jesus answers him this way. John 14, verse 9. Jesus said to him, have I been so long with you and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? What does that sound like? couple more. 2 Corinthians 4.4. In whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Another one. Colossians 1.15-16. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, 
For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. One more. Hebrews 1.3. He is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made for the purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus Christ is the image of God par excellence. Right? He is the perfect image of God. God's reaction to this rejection was to say, okay, here's what we're going to do. I'll send the perfect image of God. That way there'll be no more confusion. And how did that work out? Well, you know the story. We killed him. Ultimate rejection of the perfect representation of God. So how did God react to this ultimate rejection? What would you have done? If this were your story, what would you do at this point? Well, this is the story of grace. This is what grace means because God, his reaction to this was to throw open the gates. Say, okay, now anybody who wants can come join me, join my family, join my story, my purpose for this world. Let's move forward. 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10. Our command, our definition, where we get who we are from. But you, Christian, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. So that you may proclaim the excellence of he who has called you out of the darkness, out of the chaos, and into his marvelous light. For you were once not a people. You had no purpose. You had no meaning. But now you are the people of God. The people of God. Another verse, the Great Commission. We're all very familiar with this one, but it bears repeating. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you even to the end of the age. What does that sound like? What does that sound like to you? Go and be my representatives on earth. 
go and fill the earth with my image, my representation. This is why we are here. This is our purpose, and it is an awesome purpose. It's not just the purpose of Christians. This is the purpose of humanity. This is why we were created. And we have been given an awesome weapon to do that with, a flaming sword sharper than any other weapon, capable of dividing the soul from bone. It's an awesome thing, you guys, to be invited into God's story. Do you feel like, have you noticed that the world has gotten darker recently? And I'm not just talking about the distance between the earth and the sun. I talked a little bit about why do you get out of bed in the morning. Um, because getting out of bed is actually pretty difficult. You see, there's a lot of pain and suffering and darkness in this world. And so a lot of us need a reason. In fact, all of us need a reason. There's something that motivates us to face that suffering and darkness and pain. Now, for some of you, maybe it's money, work. Maybe for some of you, it's the weekend, right? I just need to survive till the end of the week, right? And then I can play. Do you feel frustrated? Are you angry with the state of the world? Does it well up something inside of you when you watch the news? Or maybe it's more personal than that. Do you feel like maybe you're on a hamster wheel and no matter what you do, whatever what you try, you can't get anything done. Never make any head way in the world. Maybe that is because you are not fulfilling your purpose. You see, we look for purpose in a lot of things, and we even laugh at the idea of purpose. And for some of us, we're 70, 80 years old before we even consider the idea of purpose. But what God is saying to us over and over and over again is we have purpose. This is where meaning comes from. This is where fulfillment comes from. Isaiah 55 says this to us. Why do you waste your time eating things that are not good, right? Why do you fill yourself with things that don't satisfy? Come, eat what is good. Fill yourself with what matters, and you will be satisfied. Modern psychology, I love Jordan Peterson. Um, and he will tell you that humanity is, we are built to carry a weight. We need to push against something or pull against something, right? Any of you 
who have times in your life where you've been unemployed, you know this, it's miserable. Why? Because there's nothing to pull against, right? And there's great, we know this, there's great satisfaction in work. We can feel good about it. In fact, that's kind of what defined America for generations, less now. But the idea that work will satisfy. And it's true that we're in a dark place in some ways, but I submit to you that it's not entirely wrong, this rejection of work that we're experiencing in our country today, because there is a part of it where they're right. Work doesn't satisfy. You see, it's not just any burden that you can grab and pull against. That burden is shaped like a cross. That is why you are here. That is why we are all here. Be the representative of Christ. Go into this world. Work. Right? If you're a husband, protect your family. Defend your children. Raise them well. If you are a woman, Proverbs 31 woman is a beautiful example of what it means to be a productive and godly person. But do not lose sight of your purpose. The reason you are here, the reason we are all here, God gave us a reason. And as the worship team comes forward, we're going to pray about that. We go into here to the Christmas season, a lot of awesome things. My prayer for all of us is that we keep our eyes on Christ, that we are able to discern the things that matter and strip away the things that don't. Dear God, thank you for inviting us into your family. Thank you for inviting us to have a place in your story. God, sometimes it's so easy to lose sight of the things that matter. There are so many distractions in this world. And we might even believe that there isn't meaning in this world. God, in this coming season, the birth of your son, help us focus on you, on what matters. And God, perhaps even more importantly, help us strip our away the things that don't matter. Our cars and our jobs and our future and all these things, God, help us realize that you are in control. In your precious name, amen.